This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Today, our regular contributor, Bill Bright, brings us a fascinating story about the day British troops finally left American soil after the end of the Revolutionary War. Here's Bill. The British Army held New York City for two years after Cornwallis surrendered to George Washington at Yorktown on October 19, 1781. The city's population had fallen below 10,000. Most of the residents were loyalist refugees from revolutionary terrorism. Accident disaster and the war had disrupted civic life. The great fire of September 21, 1776 had burned everything between Whitehall and Broad Streets, as far up Broadway as Rector Street and as far up Broadway as Beaver Street. Rents had risen 400% within the first year of occupation. The price of food and other goods and services, 800%. The Provincial Assembly, City Council, and courts were dormant, although nothing indicates the politicians had stopped drawing their salaries. The city was governed by the British Army, and its government, in the absence of a free press, had become corrupt. Some New Yorkers made fortunes. Mr. Joshua Loring, who had pimped his blonde wife to General Sir William Howe to gain appointment as commissary of prisoners, became wealthy by selling provisions meant for prisoners of war on the black market. Others cloaked their sadism in the red coat. Captain William Cunningham, the Provo Marshal, commanded the jails and prison ships holding American prisoners of war. The Sons of Liberty had roughed him up before the war. He repaid the debt with interest. He enjoyed torturing people. According to Burroughs and Wallace's Gotham, Cunningham admitted to murdering as many as 2,000 American prisoners by starvation hanging or poisoning their flour rations with arsenic. At night, he swaggered through his domains, wearing the red coat with silver lace and epaulets, the cocked hat, the powdered wig, and the tall glossy boots and spurs, with a whip in his hand, sending his prisoners to bed, shouting, Kennel ye, sons of Kennel ye! On November 30th, 1782, the American and British delegates signed preliminary articles of peace. The first article reads, His Britannic Majesty acknowledges the said United States to be free and independent states. The articles were proclaimed in the King's name from the steps of the City Hall on Wall Street. The Loyalists were horrified. William Smith, a longtime resident, merchant, and fervent Loyalist, wrote, that the news shocks me as much as the loss of all I had in the world and my family with it. Thousands sold everything, furniture, houses, land, goods at fire sale prices and prepared to leave. A few committed suicide. A few were confident of their ability to survive any change of regime. James Riker recorded that a New Yorker said to his tailor, how does business go? Not very well, the tailor replied. My customers have all learned how to turn their own coats. Sir Guy Carleton, commander-in-chief of His Majesty's forces in North America, began organizing his command's withdrawal from the city in April 1783. 
Concerned about personal reprisals against the Loyalists, he held out until every Tory who wanted to get out had left. In the meantime, his staff arranged transportation, settled accounts, paid bills, and auctioned off huge quantities of army surplus. The first 5,000 Loyalists left New York for Nova Scotia and New Brunswick on April 27, 1783. Thousands more followed. With them were numerous African Americans, former slaves, freed by the British military government for their services in the king's armies. On September 3rd, 1783, Americans, British, French, and Spanish signed the Treaty of Paris. The news reached New York in early November. On November 21, 1783, Carleton ordered all British forces to withdraw from Long Island and Upper Manhattan. That morning, George Washington met George Clinton, the governor of New York, at Terrytown. They rode south through Yonkers to Harlem, where they stopped at a tavern near what is now Frederick Douglass Boulevard and 126th Street. The day chosen for the evacuation was Tuesday, November 25th, 1783. It dawned cold with a bitter northwest wind. During the morning, a Mrs. Day ran up the stars and stripes over her tavern and boarding house on Murray Street, its first appearance in the city since September 1776. Captain Cunningham, resplendent in red coat and white wig, pounded on the door. Take in that flag, he roared. The city is ours until noon. He then tried to pull it down. She belted him full in the face with her broomstick, bloodying his nose, and then dealt the captain such lusty blows as made the powder fly in clouds from his wig and forced him to beat a retreat. Washington had chosen General Henry Knox to command the American troops marching from McGowan's Pass in what is now Northeastern Central Park into the city. Knox had been a bookseller, a dumpy, bespectacled little man who had read every book in his stock. The war transformed his theoretical passion for artillery after all, he'd read all the books about it, into practical experience. Behind the glasses and the big belly was the soul of a lion. In 1775, in the dead of winter, he inspired Continentals and militiamen to drag the cannons seized at Ticonderoga in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress to Albany and across the Berkshires to Washington's army at Boston, and he had marched with them. As a boy, I noticed a monument near my family's home in Latham, New York. It read, Through this place passed General Henry Knox in the winter of 1775-1776 to deliver to General George Washington at Cambridge the train of artillery from Fort Ticonderoga, used to force the British army to evacuate Boston. Knox set out early from McGowan's Pass, heading a column of some 800-foot dragoons and artillery. He paused at the Bowery and 3rd Avenue, near today's Cooper Union, until 1 p.m., chatting with the British officers commanding the Redcoats standing a block or so before him. The last British detachments now received orders to move. They moved down the Bowery and Chatham Street, picking up their outposts as they passed, and wheeling into Pearl Street, marched to the East River wards where they were rowed to the fleet. 
Knox followed the British down Chatham Street and then turned onto Broadway. He marched south to Cape's Tavern, a little below Trinity Church, and formally took possession of New York City in the name of the United States. On receiving a message from Knox that he had done so, Washington swung into the saddle and rode downtown, Governor Clinton at his side. At the new jail, at the northeast corner of today's City Hall Park, Captain Cunningham paraded the Provo Guard for the last time. Accompanied by the hangman in his yellow jacket, Cunningham's command passed between a platoon of British troops, which fell in behind them as they marched down Broadway. They and the City Hall's main guard thus became the last enemy forces in history to occupy New York City. Washington rode down Pearl Street to Wall Street and then went on Wall to Broadway at Cape's Tavern. A group of citizens welcomed the commander-in-chief. An eyewitness said, The troops just leaving us were as if equipped for show, and with their scarlet uniforms and burnished arms made a brilliant display. The troops that marched in, on the contrary, were ill-clad and weather-beaten and made a forlorn appearance. But then they were our troops, and as I looked at them and thought upon all they had done for us, my heart and eyes were full and I admired and gloried in them the more because they were weather-beaten and forlorn. The British had left the Union flag flying over Fort George on the battery. The halyards, the lines for raising and lowering the flag, were gone. The banner had been nailed to the staff. And the pole was greased, heel to truck, to prevent or hinder the removal of the emblem of royalty and the raising of the stars and stripes. The grease rebuffed all efforts to climb the staff. In the crowd was Captain John Van Arsdale, a New Yorker, revolutionary soldier, and peacetime sailor. Recalling Peter Goulet's hardware store about ten minutes away in Hanover Square, he sprinted across town and liberated a saw, hatchet, cleats, rope, and nails. He began nailing the cleats into the greasy pole. He climbed a little, drove in more cleats, and climbed farther. Bit by bit, he ascended the pole. He reached the top. He ripped down the British flag and flung it to the cheering crowd. Then he attached new halyards and scrambled down the pole as the stars and stripes ran up it. General Knox's field guns began a 13-gun salute. As the colors went up and the cannon roared, the British weighed anchor and made for the open sea. That night... Washington and his officers met with General Clinton in France's tavern at Broad and Pearl Street for a feast of reason and a flow of soul. They offered 13 toasts to allies, friends, comrades living and dead, their hopes for their new country, and certain immutable principles. The next nine days were marked by what one observer called good humor, hilarity, and mirth. Thus, at Governor Clinton's dinner for the French ambassador on Tuesday, December 2nd, 1783, his 120 guests consumed 135 bottles of Madeira, described as, it may not look like much, but it can fell an elephant, 36 bottles of port, 60 bottles of beer, and 30 bowls of punch, while breaking 60 wine glasses and 8 cut glass decanters. On Thursday, December 4th, Washington breakfasted with his officers in the long room on the second floor of France's tavern. Then the commander-in-chief rose to his feet, and there was silence. Most intelligent warriors who have written of their experiences 
from Xenophon to William Manchester, admit that they fought not for king, flag, or country, but for the guys they were with. The revolutionaries were no exception. Washington said, With a heart full of love and gratitude, I now take leave of you. I most devoutly wish that your later days may be as prosperous and happy as your former ones have been glorious and honorable. Then he could say no more. General Knox stepped forward, embraced him, and both men wept. At last, composure regained. The commander-in-chief went down the stairs, popped on his cocked hat, and strode into Pearl Street. The infantryman snapped to present arms. He acknowledged the salute. Then he walked west. Orders were barked. The column moved out behind him. Near the battery at the foot of Whitehall Street, a barge waited to take him to Paulus Hook on the New Jersey shore. From there, he traveled to Philadelphia, where he resigned his commission to Congress and returned to private life. November 25th was celebrated as Evacuation Day in New York for more than a century. But Evacuation Day was gradually overwhelmed by R.H. Macy's aggressive promotion of Thanksgiving, a rival end-of-November holiday. Around the beginning of the First World War, it faded away. Yet in 1983, through the support of Manhattan Borough President Andrew Stein, New York City commemorated the bicentennial of the evacuation. A parade marched down Broadway to the Battery, featuring hundreds of reenactors in the uniforms of the British and Continental Forces. The British Union flag was flying from the staff of Castle Clinton. Then Harry Van Arsdale, the Union leader and direct descendant of Captain Van Arsdale, stepped forward to lower the British colors, which were presented to Her Majesty's Consul General, who kissed them. Van Arsdale clipped the stars and stripes to the lanyards and ran it up the pole. A dozen brass muzzle-loader cannon along the battery began firing a salute, and the crowd cheered wildly. On August 16th, 1824, Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves de Mautier, Marquis de Lafayette, the last living general of the revolution, the hero of two worlds, landed at the Battery to begin his tour of the United States. Tens of thousands were awaiting him. Among them was a company of veterans of the revolution. The Marquis insisted on inspecting them and slowly walked down the line, greeting and shaking hands with each man. Lafayette took a second look at the last man. Then he smiled. Van Arsdale, he said, I remember you. Then the captain who had ascended the flagpole and the Marquis who had been a major general at 19 embraced. And we thank Bill Bright for that beautiful storytelling. And my goodness, well, that's why we do what we do here at Our American Stories. Uh, What we've lived through as a country, what George Washington did. And by the way, we have a special, special hour on Washington resigning his commission. Because as King George III said, if it's true that he did what they say he did, he's the greatest man that ever lived. No one had ever done anything like that. Win a war and then go home. And that's what he did. He won a war and went home. And that's what... So many of these men and the women who sacrificed so much did. Washington returned to Mount Vernon only once during the entire war. And my goodness, go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to that story of Washington resigning his commission 
And we have the military historian at West Point, Sean Scully, on that. And an historian named David McCullough. You've probably heard of him. And the president of Hillsdale College, Larry Arn. Three different perspectives on this remarkable achievement. Evacuation Day, the day the British troops finally leave America in 1783. Put that on your celebration calendar, folks. What a great day, especially if you're New Yorkers. This is Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories. And now we bring you one of our listeners' stories from the Twin Cities, and that's Minneapolis, St. Paul, where we broadcast on WCCO AM 830. You've already heard Paul Cotts on the show, and he's back with more stories from his book, Something Happened Today, a collection of the unexpected. The book was initially conceived by Kotz's desire to leave something inspiring for his daughters to read. The title is a suggestion to look for a miracle every day and is drawn from personal experience. Here's Paul. I walked Como Lake on a beautiful, sunny, yet cool and comforting day. On my walks, I invariably see many of the same people. There's this one middle-aged lady with her little dog walking. Usually we just say good morning or say something about aches and pains or how the weather is and move on. At the end of my circle of the lake, which is about 1.6 miles, I was just about to head back to my home about five blocks away. I saw the woman again on the flip side of the lake and she said, how many times do you go around? I said, well, usually only once. I stopped and she proceeded to tell me that she had four wonderful kids. And before I knew it, she continued to tell me how one of her sons died while rollerblading around the lake and how she was the one who found him. Can you imagine? In that moment, I felt her pain listened, and then asked her about her other three kids, and she mentioned how they were all struggling. I said to her, aren't we all struggling? And she proceeded to tell me about her dad and how he was not very religious and didn't believe in community church, but expressed that, quote, if you take care of your family, you're doing God's will. She remarked how she did not feel strong enough sometimes, and I asked her if she knew much about Eleanor Roosevelt. And she said, I'm not that old. Well, we laughed and I said, you know, I'm not either, but I still found her an amazing source of strength. Now I'm paraphrasing, but Eleanor said, be like a tea bag. You will only find out how strong you are when you're put in hot water. I remarked to the woman with the dog that it sounded like she has been in her share of her own boiling water. 
I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with Our Lady of Good Remedy. I was not aware of this affiliation with Mary, the mother of Jesus, until that morning. But I opened some junk mail when I got back home, only to find this particular prayer card with bonus mailing labels and other religious relics and such. All that aside, whether you're religious or not, in the prayer card it revealed that we should touch other hearts by, quote, bringing comfort to the afflicted and the lonely, help the poor and the homeless, aid the sick and the suffering. Well, I don't know if this is what happened today in talking with this woman, but she sure reminded me of the gifts I have in my own life and to try and step outside of my own life and into another's when the opportunity presents itself. This opportunity presented itself and hit me right between the eyes. I went in for a morning workout and I searched for a locker. I put my gear on and a young guy came up to the locker next to mine and I said, good morning. He told me to F off. I was a little startled because I was just waking up and trying to get my own motor running. I paused and felt my heart beat faster. This guy was really upset. He was throwing stuff out of his gym bag, not violently, but you could tell something was not right. Before I left, I thought, better not engage him anymore. I gave a backwards glance and noticed the man had tears in his eyes as he sat on the small bench in the locker room. It was very quiet this morning. Something told me not to leave. I turned and said, I hope it gets better, man. He looked up incredulously and proceeded to tell me that he had lost his job, his girlfriend and he were fighting too much, and his car was a piece of, well, you know, among other things. I had a car like that too. I sat down and listened, but like everyone else, we have to go do things we do each day. After about 20 minutes and giving a few encouraging words and a smile, I took off to do my own routine. I'm not sure if taking the time with this guy made a difference or not but it made me realize once again that each of us, in our own unique ways, has the chance to be here for others on earth. Some of you might think that I'm rambling about seeing the good, but I continue to be enamored of people who are good to others. You're probably thinking that I need to wake up and look around me. Yes, there are individuals who can do some destructive, hurtful things to others, and then there are those who make your day. One individual was Linda, a flight attendant for Delta Airlines, who was present during a flight I was taking from Phoenix back to the Twin Cities. You could see that she enjoyed working with passengers, attending to their needs, and handling difficult customers with grace and humor. People were given a delicious beverage, and their choice of almonds, pretzels, kind bars, or cookies and you could hear her say it over and over again as she went from row to row, and still maintaining that smile and great disposition. After consuming this light cuisine on my own, I approached the back of the plane to stretch to find Linda sitting in the seat, juxtaposed tightly between the two restrooms. 
I said, Miss, they should let you wear football pads to prevent bruises. I noticed the line forming and the door was grazing her legs and in some cases slamming her each time people went in and out of these compact laboratories. She smiled and said, you know, it comes with the job, but they could have designed these to be more comfortable. Later she came back to see how all of us were doing to ensure our flight was enjoyable. When she got to me, she said, that crunch box you ordered earlier was kind of stale, wasn't it? I told her it was just fine, and she confided that she also had one, and the Arizona air must have dried out the contents. Here are some additional cookies to make up for it, she said, even though I was already satisfied. I thought she was giving me special treatment, but I realized that is how she was with all of the passengers responding to specific needs and their individual situations. Linda made my day and the other 169 passengers' days, too. Realize that that person in front of you or beside you or at your back puts on their pants one leg at a time. And if you don't wear pants, this story may have little meaning for you. But my point is that we are all human beings, all trying to get by with our own bags of phenomenal attributes, some bad memories and experiences, but so much more to offer each other. And you've been listening to Paul Kotz, and he's a listener from the Twin Cities, where we broadcast on WCCOAM 830. And of course, the Twin Cities are the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, for those of you who are not from that region. Paul's book, Something Happened Today, a collection of the unexpected. And by the way, if you've got stories like it, a collection of the unexpected, and my goodness, if we just keep our eyes open, uh, it happens every day. Send them our way. They, they don't have to be big. They can be short like this was today. Uh, send them our way, OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We love sharing your stories with the rest of the country. Paul Kotz's story, so many stories for all of us, these little miracles each and every day that happen to us that sometimes we miss here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for one of our favorite recurring features, the story of a song. And we've done every kind of song from every type of musical background, from Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, to Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, The Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, and Ray Charles's Georgia On My Mind. And now it's time for Greg Hengler's take on our favorite recurring feature. If you've been to a wedding any time between now and 2008, Chances are you've heard Beyonce's get out of your seat and dance anthem about men's unwillingness to propose or commit called Single Ladies Put a Ring on It. Putting the lyrics aside, this song would be nothing without the irresistible and exuberant beat that sinks deep into your soul. The song is driven by staccato bounce-based hand claps and a keyboard. 
This hypnotic and irresistibly contagious beat gets everybody on the dance floor. What is it about this song that does that like no other? After some digging, I was taken on a fast, fun, and fascinating journey, linking what we hear in Beyonce's single ladies to what is heard in almost every black church to this very day. Let's begin by taking a trip back to the start and work our way up to Beyonce. Here's music historian David King. A lot of people, when they think of gospel music, think of the sound of the vocal, uh, they think of spiritual aspects of gospel, but they very often don't think enough about the rhythmic aspects and the driving beat. Gospel has that dun 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 right? It's influenced by Boogie Woogie and other styles. And that pounding, sort of frenzied aspect of gospel is really important to its spiritual aspects. It's, it's what caused people in churches to to catch the spirit and to go wild. But it directly got transferred into rock and roll music through the gospel fervor and energy of people like Little Richard. Ooh, my soul. We gonna do a little thing for you. Saturday night and I just got paid. historian Todd Boyd. A guy like Little Richard, as with any sort of black artist from that era, is giving you the black church as well as the black juke joint. Here's Little Richard's drummer, Charles Connor. Richard said, I want to bring you to this train station. I want you to hear something. So now listen to the train. The train's going off. He said, a wife when they pick up speed. He said, what kind of notes are those? I said, those are eight notes. He said, well, that's what I want you to play behind me. Here's the man responsible for the Motown sound, record producer Lamont Dozer. A new form of rock and roll, as we call it, came into play during the 60s when that was ushered in by the companies like Motown. When there was a nice backbeat, beautifully sounding, good balanced sounding records, all America. Here's Annie Lennox and Ben Harper. Motown music brought my world into abundance of color and soulfulness because those melodic lines and those fantastic chord changes and those beats as soon as you heard the very first notes you knew exactly what this was it came out sounding like god Although I might be the 
Smokey Robinson. On the very first day of Motown, Barry Gordy was there and four other people, and I, I was among them. And he said, okay, I'm starting this record company. We are not going to only make black music. We're going to make music for everybody. We're going to make music for the world. We're going to make music with some great beats and some great stories. And we're going to always do quality music. We'd go places in the South, taking our, our Motortown reviews down there, you know. There's a big stage in the middle of the hall, and white people on one side and black people on the other side. It's segregated, but, you know, maybe you can do something about it. The next time we got to those places, the kids, they were dancing with each other. They were talking, intermingling, holding hands. His little black boy holding a little white girl's hand, or vice versa. That was his idea of what he wanted his record company to be. Here's producer Greg Fillingaines. The basic elements, or the main elements of the Motown sound had to do with a very solid but controlled gospel sound. It was rooted in, in a, a, a big beat, lots of bass, tambourine, drums, you know, very, very rhythmic. I said I love someone, but I know where I'm going to find them. James Brown and the JBs in the mid-60s changed the sound of, of what dance music is. If you listen to, to um, Live at the Apollo, it's a great band, it's a great show. It's still very bluesy, very churchy, the show is. Come on! Here's Sheila E., Arthur Baker, Questlove, and Q-Tip. It was the drum playing. It was funkier than, than Motown. Motown wasn't really funk. That, to me, is the hypnotic power of the James Brown effect. He influenced Sly, he influenced Stevie, he influenced Prince, he influenced dance music. Indeed he did. Now, let's take this back to where we started. Here's the hit-making songwriting production team for single ladies, Harrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. All aboard for New York City! Yeah, yeah, Trick started this beat, just a drum and the, and the quirky sound that, that we heard. And I just sat in the back. I just thought about if I was Beyonce, I would say what. I'm 
thinking. I'm quiet. He's not I'm giving not me no, no love. Yeah. He's not, he's not, we're not in it nothing. together. He's just. I'm giving him nothing. I'm Jedi. Trick stopped the beat. And I look at him and was like, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? I was going to start another beat. I was like. Yeah, you just go and sit in the like, like, right? He's like, I got the whole thing. He's like, I just wrote the whole song. The anatomy is there. The heart's there, the lungs, the the stomach, you know, the the, the I just have to put the legs on. Don't pay him any attention. Cause you had to turn turn. Now you're gonna learn what it really feels like to miss me. She came by to just kind of poke her head in and kind mm -hmm. of hear what it was. And she was like, oh. And she immediately, there was no lyrics typed out. Like, there was no nothing. It was like, yeah, let me get with that. Like, and, and the yeah. next thing I knew, she was on the other side of the booth sing singing. And we were like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is happening. He's thinking about how to connect the dots. Lyrically, I'm thinking about, B is from Houston. I'm thinking about Southern. I'm thinking about, like, to me, it's a church beat. So I just started with the... It's like, that's a sanctified yeah, she's beat. A that, she's a Southern girl. I could see the paper fans in the church and the, and the wooden benches and the, and the reverend and the baptisms that are going on and knowing what's happening after that. That's everything I get from one sound. So I'm like, how do I get this Southern girl on the dance floor? I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And there you have it. Who would have thunk it from the gospel pews of the American South? Throw in a lot of that great rhythmic talent of Beyonce and, of course, the producers. And we're talking about Tyrius the Dream Nash and Chris Tricky Stewart. The story of a song, Single Ladies, Put a Ring on It, here on Our American Stories. stories and we're well just a couple of hours east of Oxford Mississippi where we broadcast is a town called Muscle Shoals Alabama and it's Skinner's reference this place in their iconic song well southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville this little town has created a very big sound some of the biggest names in soul funk pop rock country every genre in between have recorded there, and our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit pay dirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car uh, carpet that we've got out of a theater, etc., etc. 
uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's You Better Move On in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sing the song a cappello. And uh, so consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought. And of course, immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons, and people like that. And the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of <clears throat> drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove. And that song to me fit that groove. And he said, what do you think? I said, I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you right away. He said, that's great. So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber. And, uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love. You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of But who are you to tell her who to love That's up to her Yes, and the Lord above You better move on Better move on. After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans. Uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, etc., etc., but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow 
had considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it, and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my uh, black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie Cado and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall. The track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. Yes, the beating and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. We own the move now. Yes, sir. The release of their known murderers will not discourage us. We own the move now. Yes, sir. Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section 
also known as the Swampers, has the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then, were black people. You gotta remember, this was in the 60s. And this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the school last door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here. I had more trouble when I went to L.A. or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good. It was like printing money, and the hits just kept coming. Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl One to love you and give you the world Now you find that you've been misused Talk to me, I'll do what you choose I want you to tell mama This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. Now, Rick Hall knew that he had a big, fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. He said, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two. Number one. <laughs> Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seem to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him he didn't like, the songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable, so I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shoals, and there were just... A listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances, which was enormous. And the energy and the scenario of that record, it, to me, is wonderful to this day, the projection. Just something that comes, that leaps out of a record. I call it the sonority of the record, that it's different from the rhythm, it's not exactly the sound, it's not the songs, 
It's the gestalt. It's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly. And to me, that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record. If you can convey that, it can't be defined or explained, but it's something that just grabs you. And so from then on, Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and love to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in um, Muscle Shoals, and these cats are, these cats are really greasy. You're going to love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in 66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording. Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide, playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name is Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time and... Uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. 
Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at ten bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues here on Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals. And we were all laughing in the studio. Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall, who's that guy playing guitar on that track? And he says, oh, some hippie kid living in the parking lot. And that was Dwayne Allman, folks, and the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands, the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock. And now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big, big music town in this country. Here again is Jesse. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers. In 1969, they left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed. But there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 79. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. 
If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them. Because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, Before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. I played at the Tuscumbia Armory Square Dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Del Rays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. At that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And, uh, and the ones in Nashville were very hard to, to get involved with. It was like uh, almost impossible. For some reason, of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, L.A., Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at the... Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd 
finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford was singing. Uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon, and uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. And the recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, hmm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a Swamper in 1991. A typical session here, I mean, if, you, if you're, say you're a singer and you come in, Muscle Shoals and you hire the A-team. They'll listen to the demo. They'll write a chart out. And without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off. And then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle Shoals sound. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, you know, is with the musicians that, that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound, Fame Studios, and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends. And follow us on Facebook at Our American Network. Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players. 
who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on, and it's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That's some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And um, got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live. And I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in, in L.A., and uh, he asked me to play him some songs, and I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music, and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. And he said I'd like to demo that song, so they graciously flew me down here from L.A. and wasn't in a traffic jam for three days, and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A. and the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles. I just said this is not living, and I packed up my family and moved here in 1980. Where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section, really. I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that, you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis, you go, that was cut in Memphis. Or you hear Motown, you go, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did... I'll Take You There, Old Time Rock and Roll, Kodachrome, and Torn Between Two Lovers, and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I mean, how versatile is that? And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody everybody's every thought it's just generally you know when you listen to when a man loves a woman and and a do right woman or those things they the song breathes you hear the song you hear the artist and and that's what i was drawn to especially after all my years with bonnie where you know what was she she wasn't country she wasn't straight blue you know what i mean she was just this versatile you know combination of all of our influences that we loved the most and i just felt muscle shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I love. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the Swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know... You know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful thing. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be, 
you know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want, or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you The guitar player just plays very few notes, and that's one of the things I really love about it, is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is, if people hear a great song, and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture you, we don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town? We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player, and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home. You know? But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could, and, and I did. And it has served me well, but along with that, I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden, I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap, and people were calling me to, to write songs for them or write songs with them, and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so while I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. 
I think the the Muscle Shoals sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a, it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. Uh, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s, which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music. But it also had a little something else. It had a little funk to it, a little blues, a little rural, uh, homespun, organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis, Macon, other areas that were making, Detroit, Philadelphia, other areas that were making soul music. The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, Put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios for the very first time. For Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river. It's the space. It's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musicians said over and over again that minimalistic approach. But they lead minimalistic lives, folks. That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar. And the artists, what a crazy idea. The musicians serving a song. If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music, and the story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories.